From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of Department of Statistics, and I'm joined today with Eric Bradlow, also of the Department of Statistics and the Department of Marketing, and Shane Jensen of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. We're going to talk today for about a half hour about COVID-19 and its various statistical questions and concerns. We'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about sports. So, guys, Eric, Shane, what has caught your attention regarding COVID-19 and the various uh, goings-on? Well, I think what has to have caught everybody's eye at this point is the parts of the country where things seem to be going at the um, exponential growth that we saw in the Northeast early on. And um, I think also the things that we've talked about on the air for the last four or five weeks is that you know, we know that cases, at least someone I think finally admitted might have been uh, Secretary Azar from Health and Human Services said there's probably anywhere between a six and 24 fold increase. Like if they're saying it's two million cases, it could be as high as 50 million. It could be as high as 12 million. That was interesting. But I think back to what you've said for weeks, Adi, I think there's some other troubling indicators in that given that you're tested, the positivity rate is going up. We're starting to see hospitalizations go up again. And again, within a few weeks, we're likely to see deaths going up again. Well, and, so, and I mean, I will. I, I was going to kind of clarify that it is troubling to see the cases climb, you know, in that exponential kind of growth sort of rate in, in places like Florida and Texas. It hasn't yet. It's worth, again, just observe, pointing out that it hasn't yet led to like an exponential growth, a similar kind of exponential growth in deaths. Let me just jump in. Um, I actually managed to do some some last minute statistical analysis just before our show went to. There's a lot of great repositories for those uh, aspiring data scientists out there. Uh, The New York Times has a great uh, GitHub repository. And so every every Monday, usually I go to the repository, you know, go back and collect it and rerun some of the analysis. There's been enough data coming from the South and, and the West to actually see the deaths starting to rise. Mm. Um, that is happening. And, you, and of course, there's been enough time in the cases, and you can see that they are now rising exponentially, which on the log scale, scale which is the best way to look at it, is a, is a straight line. So when things are growing exponentially on the log scale, it's a straight line. That's very fast. The good news, I guess, if you can consider this good news in any level, is that it's, it's growing at around 5 to 6% per day, which in comparison to what we were seeing in the Northeast, which was 25% a day. So things were just out of their mind crazy back in the early days in, in, in the uh, Northeast. Of course, 5, 5 to 6% adds up fast. It, it, it does ex- that's a huge growth. The death rate seems to be chugging along at about 1% to 2%. We'll see more as we get more of them. Um, and, uh, and again, we'll, a lot's going to change in the next few just weeks. Just to be clear, Adi, when you say yeah. the death rate's 1% to 2%. Per day. Mean, I know, but you're saying conditional on being tested. Uh, no, so so well, uh, it's hard to say. Um, whatever they're counting as a death due to COVID nineteen in this database is undoubtedly because someone has allocated it as a COVID nineteen death. Uh, but I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'll maybe re-ask the question because my uncertainty isn't necessarily so much about the numerator in that statement. It's what is the denominator when you say one or two percent? It is the num- uh, is that it is the, the growth of, people of new deaths positive. No, no. So, okay. So five to 6% is the, is the growth in tests in, in positive cases, right? Five to six is a growth in positive cases per day. That's new cases. That's the day-to-day growth in new cases, right? Yeah. So it's not the growth in the right. total number of cases. Let me ask you a question. This yeah. is what, let's just start with there. Cause I wanted to just for our listeners, I think this is really important. Is the following statement true? So there are people that say, well, it's due to increased testing. Well, let me just be clear. If testing goes up, at a slower rate than the rate of new cases. Can we eliminate the possibility that testing is the cause of the increase in reported cases? I would say yes. And in fact- The entirety of the cause. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's not a singular exactly. thing. But... Shane, that's- uh, uh, and, and testing isn't going up as fast as the, as the number of new re- cases, not even close. No. But I think yeah. it's important that we as statisticians say that because yeah. people are hearing the language of, well, we're doing more testing. Yeah, but you're not doing more testing at a rate that of which the rate of positivity is the number of cases is going up. And then of course, back to your kind of Shane, back to what is the denominator? 
conditional on being tested, the fraction of people testing positive is going up. And most models of population diffusion, that's rare. It's very rare that you see rates going up over time because this is the classic, you know, you know, heterogeneity story, which is the people that were, mo if you call a vulnerable population, the most vulnerable people tend to get something first. The people most likely to buy a product buy it first. Yeah. You tend to see conditional hazard rates going down over time, not increasing. It's well, I, I think the additional dynamic here is that, I mean, obviously a huge part of Corona's just general story is the incredibly kind of large proportion of asymptomatic people. And as testing goes up, one way in which positivity could go, would be going up is that you're hitting more and more of that asymptomatic population that wasn't being previously tested because they were asymptomatic. Yeah, and, and just to follow on that as well, there's a huge run-up in uh, certain age distributions, which probably wouldn't even be tested at all yeah. if, there were, if there weren't sort of widespread availability. And there's all kinds of very interesting reasons why people are getting tested. Obviously, back in the early days, people, the only people even considered to be tested were people who were ill, in some cases very, very ill. Now people are getting tested because they want to go away with their friends. I and think they, that's a great point, which is... Yeah. For right now, let's even say this is let me say why I think your point is really interesting. Let's even say to you, I said, conditional on being tested, the numbers, the death rate, the hospitalization rate is the same as before. I'd be like, oh my God, no. That's yeah. horrible. Because if you're telling me that, you know, three months ago it was people 70 and above with comorbidities, and today it's a more broad population, I would expect those numbers to go down because I'm testing a healthier population. Right, right. So well, me, no, but you have to remember, no, it doesn't look at all like it, the way it looked back in March. No, I the, said it again. I yeah, said so it the the growth is there, but it's growing at a much smaller rate. The death rates are are the death rate. The death rate is there. There is a growth in 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 deaths per day, but it's very small. And I think that a lot a lot have to do. Is, I would attribute it to three things, not just one or two. Number one. The spread is slower as much as there is isn't or is or isn't adherence to various population rules around mask wearing and distancing. There is a considerable amount of it, and that keeps it from rapidly spreading the way New York. Um, it just ripped through the city, through the public, through the, through, through the subways, through the incredible yeah. crowds, through the through the poor neighborhoods in the Bronx and Queens. And we aren't seeing that happening in Texas and Arizona or Florida. We're seeing a much smaller, a slower, but nevertheless exponential growth in cases because it is disproportionately um, um, centered around young people, and in some cases really young, like the median age is 30 at this point for many of the positive tests. The, the, a much, much smaller fraction of those are getting sick, are getting hospitalized, um, and, and then, of course, even smaller are dying. So all these things are happening, but, they're, but it's a completely different uh, stage of an epidemic or type of epidemic than happened in March and March and. April uh, here in the East Coast. And, 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 these, and these factors will be exacerbated come fall when campuses do, you know, so campuses take some form of reopening and there's going to be a large amount of testing associated with that. That's right. right? So, I mean, cases, all, we're going to be, the cases will climb, the number of tests will climb probably exponentially come September, you know, late August, early September. And it'll be interesting to sort of see what the kind of fraction of positivity have happen you know what happens to that then i think what also will be interesting is that um you know i think we've discussed this and matter of fact, i remember you're exactly saying this a few weeks ago let's say Penn decides to open and everybody comes back on campus right the problem is not so much that it's when they leave the campus yep and when they visit their parents or grandparents or us as faculty members you know we're not worried about the 20 year olds infecting each other but yes we are but we're not worried about their massive downstream implications. So what I'm very interested to hear is, as this continues to grow in the population, if it does, what happens if there isn't the social distancing? What if there isn't the mask wearing? In some sense, it's almost like there's this potential of seriousness that's growing rapidly. It may manifest itself. And maybe this is what, you know, uh, 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 Dr. Fauci is saying and others. Um, if people would adhere to all of these protocols, there might be this massive potential out there, but maybe it won't manifest itself as much. Yeah, I think that's part of the motivation or like I, I think, the, you know, almost every university that I've heard of is taking this kind of mitigating step, at least of 
kind of closing essentially campus back down at Thanksgiving so that you don't have that like, re- you know, repeated trip back home type thing. Right. So that like, you they want to do it once. If, if, if campuses <laughs> right. do become kind of a hotbed of, of, of Corona, then presumably those students can, you know, they're only going home once they're going home a little bit early. Hopefully they can kind of self quarantine in whatever home situation they have to protect their loved ones. And that only has to be done once for the semester essentially. Yeah, I do think some students might choose not to come back because they are in home situations which are which are scary. Oh yeah, um, And if you're living with a grandparent who's uh, who's aged or, or feeble or, or somehow at risk, it, it's a considerable, you know, scary thought to come back. Although I have to say there are there are ways to deal with that. You could come back and not return home. You could you can quarantine. You can get tested. There is some. Um, I noticed that some states, some countries are allowing you to to visit if you have a 72 hour uh, negative within 72 hour negative tests. So these things are happening. I believe some colleges are planning to test before and after. Um, it, it does stretch the, the market for tests. I mean, there's a huge demand for tests now. We're, we're doing, I think, 3 million or so a week, or is it? And we, we probably need that's to double clear. that. Uh, yeah, so, the other thing that's very interesting, I actually hadn't heard any, well, we've talked about it on the air, but I haven't heard anybody in the press talk about it. So Dr. Fauci was talking about it today. He said, um, what effectiveness do you think, if you went out and asked most people, let's say you survey people, what effectiveness, if there's a vaccine, do you think it will be? And most people go, well, what do you mean? Vaccine, 100%. And Dr. Fauci's like, listen, in the history of mankind, measles has been the most effective vaccine ever, and that was at 97%. Most vaccines are at 60 to 70%. He said, you better think about this vaccine, best case scenario, 75% protection. So if you think that a vaccine, even if you think it's coming in December, January, February, don't think that you're going to inject 350 million Americans and all of a sudden, you know, boom, gone. Oh, yeah, I mean, but having having 75% of Americans protected from it is really going to lower its spread and pre- and prevalence and like I mean that's kind of like, you know, the the, the best best step towards a herd immunity type situation as well. well let me that, that's that's the state. Let me just interrupt in here, because I think what you really need to complete that is that, first of all, measles is unbelievably infectious. It's like absurdly effective. So so it, the fact that it was 97 percent effective was extremely good. It was able to essentially eradicate it. Um, I remember polio was only uh, the vaccine was effective at 60 to 70 percent. And it was eradicated, as Shane mentioned, because of herd immunity. And that's what we're going to need to get to here. But I believe that there's something potentially coming down the pike. I just read a paper discussing it based on seroprevalence studies that no place, even the worst hit towns in, in Italy were just about, you know, huge, huge suffering for are, are, ex, are experiencing an infection rate, attack rate of, of greater than 45, 50 percent. So places where there was an absolute opportunity for everybody to get sick or get infected, not even, not only mean sowing symptoms, but actually getting infected, it kind of topped out at 45, 50%, which suggests that there already is a level of immunity because this is a coronavirus and lots of things that we get are coronavirus. And if someone had something similar, you might have already have an, are many, in fact, they, the postulate is that a lot of the population has already a, some amount of immunity. And so what we really need to do is get that base immunity even higher. So mm-hmm. unlike measles, which can get ripped through everybody um, and lots of other diseases, this seems to peak out at about 50%. But, but if, if people who have this innate immunity, is would they be able to kind of detect that with the current antibody tests? Or no, no, not like, at all. No. no, they're just not getting it because they've already had something so just similar. just kind of keep testing negative, you know. Yeah, they're just negative. Yeah. And, oh, by the uh, way, I just don't know the answer. You guys might know. Um, let's say there's a vaccine and, it's, and I get injected with it and it's effective, which um, does that mean I can't be a spreader? I think so. I think, I think it, I, well, let me be safe. Sure. As non-virologists, <laughs> non-epidemiologists, I, I'm not going to speak from any real knowledge. I believe at the very worst, you, you, you probably can potentially be a spreader, but I guess the viral loads will be so much lower and everything oh, yeah. is a matter of probability. And there, I really think that's, that's the potential for making these things kind of work is that I mean, now, yeah, I, go, I, I, I'm not a virologist either, but the key must be the kind of viral load. And you would have to think yeah. that somebody who has immunity essentially would at mo- would be carrying a, like a minimal viral load at any That's moment right. in time. So, I, I mean, I, the, one of the things that's been mysterious to, about this disease, which is now being put together, is how many people in the same household where everyone is infected don't get it. 
at all. And it seems crazy. So I actually, you know, coming, coming from New yeah, so coming from New Jersey, in couples, you know, yeah, just kind couples, of cohabitating right. couples that don't, don't have get it. the same perfection. And so you wonder about. So I have, I, I'm sure you might know them. I have a friend who, whose wife got it. She was out for two weeks with the, with the, I mean, not hospitalized, but you know, terrible sickness. And he lived with her and 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 and, and was tested negative repeatedly. He eventually moved to a separate part of the house while she recovered uh, to be precaution to take precautions. But he didn't get sick. And there's lots and lots of examples with, of that. And that kind of jives with the idea. Idea that about half, 25 to 50 percent, maybe more of the population is just basically immune, which means that a vaccine doesn't have to be 95 or even 75. We already have a good start. And in fact, some people are claiming and suggesting no one really knows anything that places like New York City have seen it. It's done. It's just really can't get a grip there, and and they're they're they've recovered, and 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 places in Italy and places in, in that have been hit really really bad right. have I, suffered. I, I don't mean to be the bringer of doom. I'm trying to be the bringer of statistics here. Yeah, please. Any chance, any chance that the vaccine conceptually would be more effective for those people who are less likely to get it? So, is there a chance that in some sense we? overstate the effectiveness of the vaccine because we inject a lot of people and we say, look, 75% of people didn't get it. And you're like, no, mm. you moron. 50% weren't getting it, 60% weren't getting it anyway. So yeah. actually, and those people, it makes it look like the vaccine works. So it's really only 15 or 10 or 15% right. of the 50% who could have gotten it. So actually the vaccine's only 20% effective. Well, we could do a very well-controlled study of this where we take a bunch of people, don't vaccinate them and expose them to COVID. Right. Take a bunch of people, <laughs> vaccinate them, <laughs> and expose them to COVID, and like you know, try and create some kind of counterfactual of what what would have happened if you had not been vaccinated. Well, I mean, you what you're trying to get at. Right. Well, I have to say, Shane, you brought this up. I didn't realize it was happening, but there are people accepting the challenge and are getting yeah. exposed, and that mm-hmm. uh, that will be our probably our best best sources of data. People willing to do yeah. that, I, and I actually, I mean, you got to give them a lot of credit. No, it's true, but it's not something that you're going to be able to do at scale or probably in any no. kind of way that's going to be representative to the entire population, but I, I would guess. you just mentioned, uh, Shane, we've been on the air for you know, 20 minutes or so today so far. I think, again, we keep going back. It's always going to come back to this issue of, in general, these things, counterfactuals. What mm-hmm. is the counterfactual and what assumption are you going to make? You're right. Ideally, you'd randomize people to exposure. Some people would get the vaccine, some wouldn't. You have no reason to believe back to Adi's point that the people with inert immunity are different than those two groups because you randomized people and then you, you inject some, you don't inject the others and you kind of see what happens. And, you know, even for those that get it, even though you've done randomization, by the way, you know, we can still look at their comorbidities and age and everything else like that. There's no reason after the fact, we still can't do an analysis, kind of a heterogeneous treatment effect analysis after the fact to see who got it and didn't. I think those kind of studies are going to be done. And I think, in my opinion, they're needed. Absolutely. Well, as uh, I have a a study that came down the pike just very, very recently. I read it just before we went on the air. So it's it hasn't had a chance to really be digested. Hot off the presses. It's it's a second uh, article by John Unitas. Um, just to give you a little background about John, uh, Professor Unites from Stanford University, he wrote the famous article some, some years back talking about how half of medical findings, published medical findings are false. Um, and he talked, he said some, in some measure set off the, what we call the replication crisis in medicine. It's been talked about in other fields. And in, it's a real statistical issue. It's essentially deeply connected to the idea of false positives and uh, corrections for multiple comparisons and the file drawer problem. And we all know these things are cons- deeply important statistical issues that are, that are always, uh, you know, meat and potatoes in a, in a statistics class. So he wrote a paper at the beginning of the epidemic talking about China um, that was quite sanguine in the sense that he thought that the IFR, the infection fatality rate, was substantially lower, potentially substantially lower than what was coming out of China from Wuhan and the early early uh, measures were suggesting 3% uh, infection fatality rates. We were seeing Italy of uh, it, Italian infection fatality rates that were even higher than that. 
And he, he basically talked about uh, uh, asymptomatic carriers and lack of testing and data from healthcare workers and from the boat that suggested that it could be a, a whole lot lower. So he just came out with a new article and it is somewhat of a bombshell and I think it's going to be um, probably taken apart. So why don't we, we start with the findings and then we'll talk about what they poten- potentially are, uh, where they might be weak. So he did a, a, a what we call a meta-analysis in statistics, which is when you, when you get data from lots of different studies. And he essentially went through a meta-analysis of seroprevalence and IFR calculations from all around the world. And the theme of the study was the number, which essentially, um, he, he points out that IFR isn't a single number. It depends on a population and its characteristics. But so he, what he often did was just divide it into two pieces, less than 70 and over 70. And he said that basically the under 70 infection fatality rate is not only low, but is way lower than is being reported. And that in places where it's higher has a lot to do with health inequalities. I just and, want to be clear. Again, I want to go back to uh, uh, Shane's earlier point about what's the denominator here? This is conditional yeah. on getting COVID. What's your fatality rate? That's right. Conditional on getting COVID. What is your fatality rate? And that assumes um, that you are not sim- you're not necessarily symptomatic. That would be the yeah, SIFR, right? So this is, you must, obviously you have to have been exposed and get it. And, and most of people have been reporting the infection fatality rate as somewhere uh, around 1%. So he divides that into two, um, over 70 and under 70, and he reports the under 70 infection fatality rate as very, very low, um, less than 0.1%. Uh, and even in some cases lower than that. And he reports the overall infection fatality rate is closer to a quarter of a percent, but certainly less than a half a percent. And he talks about the, and he explains the divergences that you see in say Milan, Wuhan, and in New York City in particular. He explains China as being underprepared. And it was the first to be, to have to deal with it. It didn't know how to deal with it. And there were a lot of extra hospital illnesses that, that many people got due to overcrowding and bad management. He talks about Italy as being particularly, is still victim of the same things and also very, very aged. And so we had a very big infection fatality rate there. And he talks about New York as being basically ridden with, with health inequality. Um, and that and over hospital being overwhelmed yeah. as well, and uh, that basically parts of the community just don't, don't have the same health care. They don't have the same um, overall health. Uh, they have more, much more comorbidities and bad ones and lots of crowding and, and also very high viral loads because of crowding in the subways and things like that. And so that's how we explain sort of the anomalies. Um, so that's but if he's right, he's saying that is way, way less dangerous than has been basically generally thought. So what are your thoughts? What are your response to that that first point? Well, I mean, again, I, I guess, you know, without digging into the methodology, I, I will just sort of say that in some ways that the, so a lot of these like ideas do fit this kind of narrative that I've had going for the last couple months. I mean, and I'll just mention another fact that I saw, you know, the New York Times, I think had a headline in the last couple of days is something like 43% of the deaths so far have been in nursing homes. Oh, yeah, that's so, nationally. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. And, and, and so, you know, I, I, I t- I've been kind of thinking about the danger of COVID less about it, you know, kind of really being like a particular age puts you in a certain danger, though that obviously, you know, the danger of COVID does it's not even that across age. It's more about place. It's, it's, it's right. like less about age and more about place. These we've, we've kind of like just through our system, we've created these kind of clusters of like, like, uh, like these like very kind of tight clusters of older people through nursing homes and hospitals. And it's really kind of, you know, the bad luck of kind of being being in one of those that gets exposed that is driving a lot of the kind of death count. Yeah. So my reaction is, first of all, a couple things. Um, I like meta-analyses. I like learning what we know. Um, it's not surprising to me that uh, I don't even like the concept of uh, a constant death rate because there's no reason it should be constant over time. And I just even mean due to things, as you said, Adi, we know more, um, et cetera, I, at better hospitalization. I think that's possible as well. Third, it does not surprise me that there could be a 10 to 1 ratio or more between someone at a very higher age group and someone at a lower age group. That ratio, as you guys know, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, I just think about it as, again, even though the probabilities are low, you have to think about how do you cut down big N? Because again, even if the death rate is, let's say, one-tenth of 1%, if a hundred, if a hundred million people at that death rate get infected, that's still a hundred thousand deaths of that class of individuals. 
And then you've got maybe another 25 million individuals, let's say at a 1% death rate maybe, or somewhere in that neighborhood. So there's another 250,000. And so to me, at, at those numbers, and I'm saying good news is I don't think all 350 or 335 million people are gonna get infected. But if they were, you could see why you could come up with an overall forecast of a half a million deaths or more. And so to me, I think more about how to cut down big end. How do we make it so that even when small probabilities, when they multiply really big numbers, that can still add up That's to a, right. a large expected number of deaths. Well, just following up on both of your observations, uh, Unitas had quite the, he didn't, he didn't spell it out specifically, but he essentially said the New York and New Jersey and, and even Pennsylvania governors really, uh, I'm not sure they knew at the time that it was the bad decision, but in retrospect, the decision to bring them back to their nursing homes turned out to be a very destructive um, um, decision. And one of the other observations he made, this is, I'm not sure if this is true, we'll see, is that because of the, the average time one or the median length of time that one stays alive in a nursing home is extremely low. It's about five months, which makes sense. You're only put into nursing homes at the very end of your life. Right. That they actually expect to see a depression in deaths going forward. If you just work it out, I mean, you had it's right, like, right, and, right, and he right. claimed that in France you already see that the most most frail people, instead of living five months, lived a month, and that you're actually going to see a a, a, yeah. a a depression. That seems to be an odd observation, but it might very less true. But it doesn't change the overall picture of the virus. One thing: what do you think about this? Let's just go back to as we as we conclude our 27 minutes or our, our, our half hour first show. Um, let me ask you a question. Is, are we going to learn something from the Texas, Florida, Arizona, Los Angeles um, kind of breakout that's happening in the Southwest? And we, when we come back next Monday or the Monday or Wednesday, the Wednesday after that, what, what are we going to have to say that will be learned from that that will be new? What are we looking to see there, either good or bad? Well, I would like to see a certainly, you know, kind of data at a high enough resolution where we, we have an opportunity to kind of evaluate again, like to the extent that some of this is driven by reopening or relaxing of policies, is it things like, you know, like are, are most of these outbreaks occurring as a result of like indoor activities mm -hmm. or is it like large public outdoor gatherings? Certainly Bars, already yep. we've had like a few weeks of observation um, and I, I don't think really yet any much indication that some of these large protests had happened led to much of a, a, a spike in, in things. And in part, because perhaps there are outdoor activities and there was a lot of mask wearing. But I think, you know, Florida and Texas kind of doing their mass reopening the way they did gives us an opportunity at least to learn a little bit more about like mm -hmm. specific like types of activities and, and, and kind of like right. what, what leads to more transmission. I think what we, I, I think what I've learned the most is that um, if you don't follow the, re the recommended guidelines of social in outdoor areas and even indoor areas of social distancing, mask wearing, et cetera, that um, any area, unless you've reached like New York City, maybe your theory is right, Adi. Yeah, John's theory. <laughs> but I'm saying it's gonna, things are going to spike up. In other yeah. words, the virus has not gone away and it can spike up in most areas, if not almost all areas again. And so um, if that's what I've learned in some sense. I kind of learned what happens when you don't follow these rules. As Shane said, if all these rules were followed, that's the counterfactual. It's hard to know. Well, anyway, that concludes our first half. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We are now going to transition back to talking about sports. Uh, sports without fans, and uh, that's hopefully getting started. We ended our show last week with a bit of a survey amongst the four of us. Uh, Kate is not here today to react to, to the news. So the news that transpired in between our broadcasts was Major League Baseball it seems to have come to an agreement. They have a start date. I believe it's either July 24th or July 25th, depending on where you are. Um, it's going to be a 60-game season. Of course, uh, tempering that good news is widespread spread um, test, positive tests among players, which me makes everybody kind of nervous about the, the actual possibility of playing, um, actually getting the season started. So the plan is in place, but we definitely expect um, that to be put into question over the next month. So that's what's, that's what's changed with baseball. We have uh, probably no specific news about the other sports, but uh, where were we um, in, our, in our, how would we reevaluate our numbers from last week? So but without knowing what they were, um, 
um, maybe or in this case you remember. Let's see. Let's see where, what we thought. So I actually was had the opportunity to maybe since I have the I have my, the numbers right in front of me. What I said last time. I'll start with with Major League Baseball. I was at thirty three percent. Um, and I think I'm going to raise that up to probably around 50% now. What do you guys think? Well, I'll go back to what I said last time, which is if you ask me the probability of MLB starting, I'm going to say high. And if okay. you ask me the probability of MLB finishing, I'm going to say low. All right. <laughs> I, I, look, everything I've seen, I mean, you guys, we talked about it briefly last week. We saw what happened in tennis when – they played Djokovic, yeah. with Djokovic, and now a whole, every, basically every single person he played with, afterwards, they all got COVID. Okay, we're seeing it now. Well, to be fair, they all got COVID because he they went to a bar together, <laughs> and, they, and they hung out. I don't think they got it on the court or in the locker room. And by the way, it's clear that they weren't taking precautions. Right. So just to be clear, when I make my projection here, I'm. I'm averaging over what I think the behavior will be. Right, absolutely. I'm including all of that in there. So I think okay. baseball is going to start. I'm not as confident it's going to finish. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm I, I, I'm in the same. Like I, you know, my my pre, you know, kind of pre uh, agreement uh, value was forty percent. I'll I'll up that up to like fifty five or sixty percent now that they finish the season. But the reason it is still that low is. You know, it, when when I make this probability evaluation, I not only have to factor in exactly what Eric was talking about, which is the actual behavior of the participants and the league officials throughout the season, but also we're trying to make this kind of estimate when we don't, like not a single one of these leagues has announced kind of specific guidelines by when, uh, you know, under what circumstances they will stay open versus closed down. Right. They have not done so. I mean, mean, you know, obviously it could be anything from, Oh, if there's, you know, one COVID case, we shut it all down. I mean, no, I I doubt that there'd be that unreasonable, but unless we actually have some actual, you know, unless these leagues kind of pre-specify their guidelines by which they will close down, it's really kind of hard to guess what, 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 what will actually happen, what the let outcome me throw will out be. A, let me throw out a statistics question to both of you that relates to sports. Let's take a stay on MLB. Just for math purposes, let's just imagine 54 games were going to be played. We know it's 60, but 54 is a third of the season. Would you just, if you had forecast, and let's assume for the moment everybody was playing, although we know that's not true. Yeah. But let's assume everybody was playing. Would you just take your win projections for the entire season and divide them by a third? <laughs> that's I mean, a good question. A, it is a good I'm question. I'm trying to ask some good statistics. Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Well, what would you do, Eric? Well, Come I'll, on, right, answer your own first. question. I'll go first. Mm-hmm. No, let me say why. Um, I think the chances of the best teams with the best talent being able to play all of its players, yeah. all of the games, without need of resting, lower chances of injury, etc., which tends to be more of an equalizer – it wouldn't be impossible for certain teams to go for a shortened season to go to a four-man rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, uh, no, I would not just cut them by third. If I had to guess, again, this is my prediction, but you guys shred me. Actually, I have to think about it because what I was about to say is I, I think I'm, we're going to see greater variance. But um, but actually, yeah, well, well, by the way, lowering the sample size, lowering N increases variance enormously. It's going to increase the variance. So I think we're going to see increased variance here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, if I was doing this, I would, because, you know, whatever win projections I came up with for a whole season would have been like regressed down towards the mean because of the, you know, because because these, you know, the issues we discuss this show all the time that like you don't tend to see, you can't predict that any one team is going to be like on a 110 win team, but I would redo that regression less if it's only a 60 win season, right? I think you will see greater variance. And so I think you'll, you know, whatever, whatever projections you're doing should be regressed less to the mean than they would be over an entire, like a whole so I'm going to summarize and, and put my spin on it. I think that um, following Eric, I think the better teams will be better. The worst teams will be worse. So my forecasts on a percentage basis, 
you know, your probability of winning a game will be a little bit more spread out than they are over the course of the season. But the small end problem means that, remember, it's the number of games you win is what really matters, which is N times that probability. That N is small. So we're going to see a huge variation and that's going to dwarf. That's going to make everything do- dominate. And so this is an opportunity for a weak team to uh, to actually get in the playoffs, um, yeah, this is, will, as we all know. The other dynamic, I don't think it's yeah. as important as just the small sample size issue, but the other dynamic is I mean MLB schedule is always somewhat unbalanced but it's going to be much more unbalanced this time around I mean the way the league right. you know, the games yeah. are actually structured is that you're basically any team is only going to be playing within one of you know either their own division or the corresponding division in the other league so uh, that's gonna... so the Yankees are, will be playing the Red Sox repeatedly and the and the Orioles and uh, who else is nearby right. Right. And, and they'll the also be down. going against the NL East, like the Mets and Phillies, etc. They'll do that as well. Are, are we, is there going to be uh, – what kind of uh, bifurcation of the leagues is planned? Is it going to just be anybody plays anybody? DL – I mean, the, the uh, designated hitter is being, is being introduced to the National League this year. Is it because of that? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not even I, – I think I'm, – I, I, I'm not quite sure how the DL kind of figures in the calculation. But the actual structure is, you know – you know, teams in the AL East will only be playing teams in the AL East and the NL East. Oh, they will. You know? Okay. And the same right. thing, teams in the AL Central will only play teams only play in the AL Central and the NL Central. And again, of course, all people are already kind of projecting which teams are going to be advantaged by this structure or not. I mean, I read a little bit about how, because we're, we're basically going to still be deciding playoff slots based on That's division right. winners plus two wild cards, same as the usual kind of format. And so for those, you know, the wild card is really what would be influenced by kind of this really unbalanced schedule. And, um, you know, teams in the, the, the central teams seem to be kind of a little bit advantage versus either the West or East teams in terms of lack of competition. Yeah, so I, the I good teams, in the NAL central have kind of a, more of a kind of, you know, a leg up towards the wild card fight. Yeah, I want to go back to what you said earlier, which is an interesting theory. It's probably empirically true, but there's no theorem that it's true, which is in some sense, your claim is that the variance of, well, I'll use the terms that I like to use when I was at ETS, the variance of theta, the variance mm-hmm. of the ability of the teams is bigger, is bigger. But this is your point, Eric. I know, I know. <laughs> but there's enough random variation. Mm-hmm. In the given that n is smaller, that's that right. Actually, you could imagine a a higher probability that a weaker team mm-hmm. will actually make it into the playoffs. That's right. And so that's a very. I mean, by the way, there's no. I mean, there's a theorem that relates those two sources of variation, or there's a mathematical equation you can write down. But we're just hypothesizing that that phenomenon. We don't know that. No. that no. Well, we know about the we know about the behavior of binomials, of course. That's the one thing we do know. We, do um, we don't know about the increased variance in, in what you call theta, which is your sort of your underlying talent measure. Um, and we believe that a, a good team in a short series is going to be an underlyingly better, have a higher theta. Now we witness this with the World Series. There's no doubt that the teams really, really stack themselves for the World Series, and, and undoubtedly they're better. And that's probably true in the playoffs in general. But this is going to be a short version of a play. I mean, a long playoff, short series season more or less I again and the other difference of course between baseball allows us to transition to another sport which is the NBA another difference is that baseball is actually going to be played in the home stadiums oh we also don't let's not also forget about the increased risk due to travel Mm -hmm. I understand Mm -hmm. um you know that there'll be it's not like there's going to be um everybody on their planes these teams travel in private planes and everything else but they're going to be staying in hotels there's obviously uh, it's different than having a single staff who is going to be like, you know, in the Disney complex where um, it's not like they're going to be bringing in 87 different staffs. I mean, so you have to add that on as a factor. So I thought it was very interesting that baseball chose not to do the hub city version or a couple or of what they're doing in basketball and hockey. In basketball. and hockey. Yeah. Well, it, it does. Uh, it will give us the opportunity in baseball to observe a little bit about d- maybe some data about the home field advantage because they will be playing in their home stadium, but without fans and we'll be able to f- maybe ascertain the effect of fans 
while still controlling for the stadium. In basketball, for example, they're in hubs. So there will be more than just a change in lack of fans. There also will be no home team anymore. So we, we won't be able to really observe what the effect of the fans are because they're not playing at home. So that great vaunted, you know, greatly desired experiment by all we all analysts will never get to be played, at least for basketball. But we'll get some insight into baseball. And football might give us an even more interesting experiment, though I don't think it'll actually happen in this way but at least the current plan in football is not just to have fans in the stadiums but the current plan is for individual teams to have the decision over what capacity wow restrictions they enforce mm-hmm. um which again is, is, is i mean you know I, there's some reason to it you know a, a, an area that has much lower prevalence perhaps could tolerate for the same you know kind of like risk could tolerate greater uh, capacity it's just it also creates weird incentives to the extent that there is a home field advantage to the fans. You, you, you are creating a competitive imbalance by allowing different teams control over how many fans they have in the stadium. Do you think there'll be Shane? Do you think there'll be any teams that they'll allow a hundred percent of the fans to go? Um, I mean, there might be teams that try, (laughs) you know, I mean, again, this is why I don't think it's going to kind of work in implementation because I think certain teams, you, you know, it basically, places the burden of responsibility on these like you know 32 different ownership groups to make these kinds of decisions i don't think it'll actually happen but yes at least theoretically they could you know the jacksonville jaguars could allow 100 percent capacity is there there will be overlap between the baseball and football season will there be weeks or days where football stadiums will be full and baseball stadiums empty Possibly, possibly. That would be awkward. I I, I do think in actual (laughs) practice, the NFL is going to have to back off this particular plan. If if I had to guess, the NFL will probably kind of gravitate more towards some kind of, you know, 10 or 15% capacity type thing across the board. Well, you bring up another interesting phenomenon, which is there could easily be Sundays in September where there will certainly be NBA, MLB, NHL and NFL all on at the same time. Yep. Remarkable. Yeah. And and what are you going to do, Eric? You're going to try to watch everything? Record? <laughs> well, as you guys know, the good news is is that you can get close game alerts and right. so you can go back and forth. Um mm-hmm. and let me just address your issue about recording. <laughs> I know you guys probably have heard about this phenomenon. Like, let's say you're a fan of some sitcom or TV show, whatever, and you record it and you watch. And most people actually don't even watch stuff live anymore. For, for obvious reasons, sports is the one thing that people don't like watching recorded. And it's not because, even if you don't know the answer outcome, the fact that you know yep. somebody else knows the outcome reduces yeah. the enjoyment for you. Although... I will not. I will not be taping uh, sporting events. I, I will say um, I had a very. In, I was introduced the to the idea of recorded baseball games with my uncle Lenny when I stayed with him for the weekend, and he records the Yankee game and then watches it about two hours from the beginning or an hour and a half from the beginning, and he simply skips the boring parts, the commercials. Oh, no, you're referring to something else, which is if I start if i record the game but i start watching it about a third the way through i can watch it in a third less time and catch up to everybody so my end that's of the right game is the same as their end of the game that's now, right i'm yeah. all for you are in favor of that because i will say it was fun it was yeah. actually an enjoyable way to watch the yankees we because we we could i mean there wasn't we tried to end more or less at the same time of the game maybe a little bit later i don't think we we, we did it quite that well and it really wasn't it was because so much what's going on during baseball could be skipped. Um, and so it's uh, usually I spend that time doing something else, talking to my neighbor. Um, but when you are watching quickly, it, it moves. So let's, Eric? let's go back to baseball again. Um, I gave my, you know, we talked about now, what do we expect for win percentages? Are there any saber metrics that we would expect to be more influenced than others? Like, for example, would we expect, a, I'm just making some up, home run rate, strikeout rate, walk rate, um, uh, earned, you know, earned run average, uh, runs per game. What are there any, you know, what things do you expect to be most, is there any way to predict what's likely to be most influenced both by a shorter preseason uh, uh, for spring training and also in some sense 
players being able to go more all out because they're not as worried about lasting through the dog days of summer in 162 well i one i mean one way you could think about you know studying this or analyzing this is you have a lot of seasons of historical data where you could just look at the first 60 games and right right. like for all these i mean you know i'll I'll just say the obvious uh, you know i assume you're only talking about rate statistics to start with yes of course very important um but, you know, you could just look at which rate statistics kind of are most or least correlated in their first 60 games versus kind of at the end of the year. All right. So, well, Shane, that's how you do it. But what's your forecast? Now you're sitting here. What do you think? <laughs> um, I, I, I certainly think um, that, you know, some of the rate like pitching rate statistics, whip and stuff like that, I, I think could actually be pretty strongly influenced. Low or high? I, I think um, – I think pitchers – well, again, let me ask you guys a question. Do pitchers or, or, or hitters get uh, warmed up quicker as the season starts? Usually I think you're sort of like, you know, the hitters take a little bit longer to warm up, but I think that might be a springtime weather thing. But I'll, I'll go with that. I'll, take, I'll, I'll say that the, the pitchers will have kind of – maybe we would look at – I'll make a hot prediction. Low um, – Whip. Low Pitcher's good. Low whip. All right, I strike Eric. I, I do have a. Sh- I can share an insight we got from Bobby Valentine. As uh, hmm. uh, I did a panel with Bobby Valentine I and uh, talking about sports without fans, um, and he actually had some insights exactly on that question. But before I tell you what what uh, he he says, I want Eric you to get to res- to respond to Shane, and then we'll fill in with both mine and Bobby's words. Um, I think I think. Um home run rates will be increased. I think people tend to slow down as this, I mean, fatigue has to make, I mean, this is partially what happened in the, you know, PED era is that people didn't slow down as the, as the season went on. So I expect uh, offensive statistics to actually be increased on a rate perspective. Okay, that's great. Um, so I'll share you with what Bobby had to say. And it kind of, uh, and, and I'll, before I do that, I'll start with my own insight, which is one of the reasons why we see hitting go up, particularly home runs go up and hitting in general go up as the season goes on is that it gets hotter. And, and temperature is a hugely important predictor of the, the, yeah. the distance a ball travels. So home runs go up for sure. As the, that's as a key the, flaw in my kind of analysis plan is that the first sixty games of a typical season is not during the summer months, right? But now, but you did exactly concur with what Bobby Valentine had to say, and he actually had an interesting insight. He said hitters take longer to get ready, but he actually tried to tell me why, tell us all why. And guess what he said? He basically said that a hitter takes time to be able to stand in that box against a hundred mile an hour fastball. When they get out there in the beginning, it's as fast to them as it is to us. I mean, he didn't use those words, but it just takes them time to get their their sea legs if you will to just be able to stand in against and 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 to predict and deal with that heat then take that's what spring training for him is all about and if that's shortened the hitters are going to be just not ready yet and the pitchers will dominate and maybe it's hard to kind of separate out these things but does bobby kind of feel like that's is that like just a timing issue of like you know they need to kind of like they've lost the ability to kind of really hit those fast pitches or is it like an intimate like a more of an intimidation issue well you know i'm not sure he he articulated first brought up i thought was more of an intimidation that's kind of what he said he basically said is that it is scary as shit to be in there with excuse my language folks but that's what it is you when you're facing a 100 mile an hour but fastball at 60 feet and 55 feet for in some measure that is extremely fast and it takes time for them to come in so we want to just quickly say goodbye to eric thanks for joining us he had to go a few minutes early so so shane it is just uh you and i together in the studio um we have to talk about a big event that happened as our final topic we got to talk about a big event that happened in new england so why don't you tell us about it and what do you think about it (laughs) no i mean i'm super excited so i mean the the event you're referring to of course is that uh the last kind of remaining big free agent well last offensive a big free agent remaining cam newton signed finally and it's with the new england patriots which at least theoretically creates kind of a, a training camp you know battle between him and jared stidham and i guess technically brian hoyer for the starting job in new england though one must think that like you know it's probably cam newton's job to lose at this point i think it's super exciting just because you know it's it's you know i like cam newton's style of play i think it's gonna be really interesting to watch what he does within kind of a bill belichick um, led um, team. Has Belichick ever done this before? Has he ever had even in a single season a sort of a star quarterback brought in? 
No, no. I mean, it's, it's a relatively unprecedented thing. It's, it's the first time in like 30 years, I think, at least, that actually a, a team has lost an MVP and gained an MVP in a single off season. So it's a relatively unprecedented kind of move in general. Um, but I, I, and, and no, I mean like for his entire, like he, the entirety of Bill Belichick's at least head coaching career, he's either had, you know, not very good quarterbacks or Tom Brady. So, I mean, we really are kind of in a, a relatively, you know, unprecedented case study here. And I think it's going to be fascinating. All right. So what I do you, I, I don't think it necessarily elevates the Patriot. Like, I don't, I, I think this does suddenly maybe, uh, make the Patriots, you know, move the Patriots up as far as, you know, per probability of winning the division and stuff like that. Um, it, it definitely, I think, moves them up in terms of, you know, the probability of a playoff, uh, challenging for the playoffs. But I don't think it really moves the needle on, you know, Super Bowl odds or anything like that. I don't see. So where are they? Even, you, where are the where were the Patriots before and where are they now? Do oh, you that, know the, I actually the actual don't odds? even know the numbers on this. I haven't really started looking at Super Bowl odds. I didn't want to jinx the actual start of the season <laughs> by looking at Super Bowl odds. But um, but I, I I I would be surprised if it moves the needle much, just because I think even with Cam, even with a, a, a revived Cam Newton, and there's obviously you know only questions yeah. on that. Mm-hmm. Um, that they would be at the same level as, as, you know, Kansas City or Baltimore or some of the, the kind of new top teams in the AFC. Well, does Cam Newton fit into the Patriots' uh, offensive line, to its uh, structure? I mean, well, what so, would have I mean, to change? The, the one thing, I, I mean, not I mean, he's obviously got a very different style from what Tom Brady has shown throughout mm-hmm. his career. Um, at the same time, you know, the Patriots, even in the kind of like the last few years of, of, of Tom Brady's time there, have transitioned from less of a pass-heavy team to more of a run-heavy team. And I think right. that, that, that kind of ongoing evolution would, you know, would, you know, suit Cam net well. I mean, I think, you know, Cam, even if he is completely recovered from injury, he's probably not going to be the same mo- mobile well, quarterback he used course not. to be. How old is he now? I think he's 31, 32. Is that right? Um, 31. Matty Dats comes with the number. There it is, 31. So, so, I mean, so, you know, I think his his very high mobility days are done, but I think the Patriots are going to be able to kind of complement what mobility he has as part of, you know, their kind of, you know, rebuilt kind of running game and stuff like that. And they'll they'll be getting some, you know, they're getting uh, Andrews, their key center back, which was a big piece that they lost last season as well. So I think these types of things actually suggest that, you know, they're kind of assembling pieces for Cam Newton to succeed there. They haven't really addressed the wide wide receiver group. They still have a relatively weak wide receiver group. Um, so that that's obviously not going to be to his advantage. Well, um, it's just as a final topic, we're getting close to the end of our hour. Um, we do expect most players to come back in the NFL, um, and there might be a couple of baseball players who take to take the opportunity to sit it out. And yep. There are really structural reasons for that. I mean, sadly, the NFL does not have very long long careers, and they don't make that much money. So it'd be hard pressed to believe that any of the NFL players will decide to sit out, regardless of their and, risks. And I mean, the kind of financial decisions different. Yep. as well because they'd be you know if they choose to sit out it's potentially for a full season so their their loss would be that's an right. entire years of salary right. whereas baseball players are kind of like you know they're deciding whether or not it's worth it for this 60 percent 60 percent yeah like 60 games like 60, 60 games. game prorated version of their salary right so ryan zimmerman announced that he is not going to play for the nationals he's played for 15 years with them um yep. and uh so they're losing ryan zimmerman but the calculation make might make sense to him um he lives his wife's pregnant he lives with his yep. uh, you know elderly and mom. he's already been a successful bay i mean he presumably he's doesn't made the money as much you as know somebody. probably a hundred million dollars over his career or something thereabouts and he's only guaranteed i think a million just or something like a million a million and a half for the year and uh it's only 60 games worth of it so it's just you know for him it's I, just and i think it, i think it'll be intriguing to sort of see i'm I, he's not going to be alone i think there's going to be right. a lot of players over the next couple of weeks that are going to be making very personal kind of decisions, decisions right um and it'll be intriguing to sort of see how those all shake out Well, we're going to learn a lot. We're going to have a lot to talk about next week when we come back. Thanks for joining us on Wharton Moneyball. And thank you to our producer, Maddie Datz, and to Dion, who will be uh, editing us up for for the show on Wednesday.